Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Eric Willett, Managing Director at RCL Co. Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I am talking to Ann Olson, Chief Operating Officer of CenterSpace, which is one of the nation's leading multifamily real estate investment trusts. Center Space is on a mission to provide great homes for residents and investors. They understand the importance of extending a highly professional level of service to all of their residents, service that adds value to their lives and turns their apartment into a home. From Denver, Colorado to Minneapolis, Minnesota and states in between, Center Space continues to grow throughout the Midwest, proudly providing apartment homes to thousands of residents, extending their vision to be the premier provider of apartment homes in vibrant communities by focusing on integrity and serving others. And thanks so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate. Thank you for having me. We have a lot to talk about today, including what's keeping your team busy at Center Space and a lot of the exciting changes occurring in the multifamily industry. But first, I really want to start and hear about your path and your background as it led up to Center Space. So let's go back to the beginning and tell us what got you into real estate. Oh, that's a good question. I often joke, Eric, that I bleed dirt. I grew up on a farm, which was really more of a real estate venture than a farm, although we did have some animals when I was young and and really produced crops, uh, commodities still today. So my father worked for Opus Corporation, which is a national merchant builder and developer. And he had a 35-year career there where he would take off a month in the fall and a month in the spring to do planting and harvesting and also, you know, grew a fairly large farm portfolio. So some of my earliest memories were talking to lawyers about easements and figuring out how much rent someone could pay in a house that we just bought that came with 80 acres. And I just tagged along on that and and then also watched his career as he developed buildings across the country and traveled for Opus, building corporate campuses. So I think from a very early age, I knew I was interested in real estate. And then I became a lawyer. And real estate was a really natural practice area for me to gravitate to. So it's it stayed with me. I think anyone who spends any time with me probably gets very sick of me saying, so-and-so owns that building and that house over there sold for this. And this is where this corporate headquarters is, or that's closing down. Or So I really enjoy the sense of community that real estate can bring and have enjoyed it my whole life. And you know all the owners, that's how you know you're deep in the industry, right? Hunting at each building. <laughs> Right. A sign of a good real estate person is you have to know who owns all the buildings that you would like to own. <laughs> of course. One of the things that I find so interesting is that, of course, at Center Space, you work on the institutional scale, but you also have one foot on the ground. If I'm not mistaken, you actually, in your probably what is less than ample free time, you also run a small retail outlet. Is that right? 
I do. I bought when I was in the private practice of law, I bought a small building with my sisters and renovated it in our hometown, which is a bad real estate decision to buy real estate in your in your hometown when you're from a place of 20,000 people and grew up on a farm. But we needed a tenant for our ground floor once we had it renovated. And I, as I joke, was sick of driving 30 minutes to buy mouth guards for my kids' hockey team. So we opened a small sporting goods store. It's been an amazing experience. We still run it today, but all of us have day jobs, but it's been a really fun way to see how connected real estate can be to the community. So it's in a small downtown where it's old historic buildings and ice cream shops and the insurance agent, but it really becomes part of the community, not only from a real estate perspective, that it was formerly vacant and, you know, got its windows broken once in a while and, you know, kind of a magnet for maybe crime or shenanigans, as the kids like to say. You know, it also became a place where high school students have their first job and the mom who is earning extra money, you know, during the day while her kids are at school can find a place to work and we support a lot of community events. So it really brought together for me on the institutional side how much placemaking is important. And I think also taught me a lot of lessons about capital allocation. I often think, boy, if I had done this in a different place, it would make more money. Market analysis probably would have not pointed to the 20,000 person town as the the largest market. It's really an interesting thing about real estate. It isn't the only building that I own in my hometown. It was actually the second one I had acquired there. I think you find that with real estate across the country and around the world, that it's very parochial. You know, people want to be able to, investors even, they want to see the properties that they own. And and it's hard sometimes to think about the world as a, as a bigger place because our experience with real estate is that we live there, we work there, we shop there, you know, we stay at a hotel and and they're all in places where we are. So trying to connect that community and that sense of institutional capital allocation to things like market demographics. And sometimes it's, it's a jump, but it's an important one to make when you uh, work on larger scale. Sure. I think that's such an important lesson to take from you know one asset to when you're managing 15,000 units to still be able to relate to the community and, and how that project interfaces with every individual around its life. So you mentioned you're a lawyer by background. What was the path that brought you ultimately to Center Space? So I am a lawyer by background and I had done a short stint, not actually not short, (laughs) I had done a stint in-house on the institutional industrial side, helping build a company that eventually went public and then eventually sold back to Blackstone on the private side just last year. And I was the head of investments there and also their general counsel. So really got a good broad range of experience, both on the investment side and in asset management. And when then IRET, Center Space used to be IRET, it had a really very diverse holdings and it was changing over its management team to become focused on multifamily and it did not have any asset management function and so this was a really great spot for me i was doing some work as their outside counsel on development and acquisitions and as uh, anyone who works with outside lawyers know they frequently give their opinions on just about anything that the business is doing and the ceo came and said you know i think you would be good to head up our asset management department and I came over as the general counsel, started out the asset management function, lined up the first set of dispositions that we undertook in order to really transform the portfolio, getting out of the healthcare sector and migrating totally into multifamily. And when that was over, took on the role of COO and started leading the entire operations team. 
But as you leave the operation side of the business, how have you found that the legal background, both in private practice and in the traditional general counsel roles, how has that changed the way you perhaps view all of the different areas you're overseeing today? I think for me personally, which might not be true for all lawyers, one of the skills that I find I draw on the most from my legal background really is project management. You have to be able to go out and really identify the strategic vision that you're that for us, center space wants and in private practice that my clients wanted. But you have to be able to get the work done every day, right? You have to be able to, to you know, justify the time you're putting into it with actual work products. So that's something I draw on frequently as both a manager. And then also when we're trying to translate our strategic vision into actual measurable goals that can be accomplished every day. I mean, these five-year plans, as, as you know, Eric, you've helped us draft one of ours here at Center Space. It's like a huge elephant and you have to eat it one bite at a time. So that's a skill that I really believe I developed as a lawyer, critically thinking about how we're going to accomplish the goals and then breaking it down into small parts and measuring the progress and and also being able to say, well, boy, this changed and you know, now should I think about it differently? So everybody who works with lawyers says the same things. We like to argue. I think for me, I like to question how we should get it done. What is the best way? Is that right? And then, you know, really try to do things in the most efficient manner. And I think that's been really helpful for me in my role to approach things with that kind of critical thought process of how we're going to get it done, how to break it down, how to measure it and make sure we stay on the right path. These five-year plans you mentioned are very can be very intimidating, but also very exciting. And I think in terms of thinking of company transformations, the transformation of IRET now center space over the last five years is probably one of the more exciting ones in the industry, really a period of great growth and expansion to new markets. Tell us a bit about the markets you're in and what's the, the value proposition you're providing in those markets. Yeah, so we had a really unique opportunity to recycle capital out of different real estate sectors into multifamily. And so we undertook a really thorough analysis of what that might look like for us from a market perspective. And we landed pretty firmly on Denver as a market that we wanted to grow in, which anyone in real estate knows right now we have a lot of tailwinds on our back. And Denver has quite a few, you know, great in migration, amazing job growth. You know, so it's really been a great place for us to go. And we built a portfolio there. We now have six assets. So our, our goal was really not only to go in and find the submarkets and products that we really liked that we thought had long-term growth potential from a standpoint of rents, but also the cash flow standpoint, right? Because you're, you know, under your NOI line, you want really good product that you think is less expensive to maintain over a long term from a CapEx standpoint. So We built a really great portfolio in Denver and feel really good about that. And one of the things that was important to us was also getting scale. So, you know, when we we didn't want to just have one asset in Denver, it's hard to staff one asset. You can't draw from a broader team when when you are short-staffed. You can't provide as many development opportunities for your team that's there. And so now that we have just under 2,000 units and, and six projects in pretty close proximity within Denver, it feels really good. And of course, we're still looking to continue to grow there. We believe in that market long term. And the other markets where we have fairly large presence is Minneapolis. We've also been growing there. We have just under 5,000 units here in the Twin Cities, which is where our executive team sits. You know, it's been a difficult, more difficult couple of years from a COVID standpoint in Minneapolis than it has been in Denver. 
but we really didn't see the same dips that other areas of the country saw. So from a Midwest standpoint, that was something that was important to us in strategic planning was thinking about overall differentiation of our company compared to other public REITs who are majority coastal and how that could benefit us. So while we are very clear and and the numbers show that we are not getting the same kind of growth that you sometimes see on the East Coast or West Coast or right now in the Southeast. We're getting very good growth and we have much less of a kind of downside when the market takes those, those dips like we saw during COVID. Very exciting value proposition and, and the unique positioning in the, in, within the sector um, certainly helps center space stand out. Yeah, and I hope all of our institutional buy-siders are listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thinking back to the that Denver expansion decision, what were the market attributes? You know, we all know Denver's hot. It's perennially on the top of ULI rankings or, you know, any rankings of migration or 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 company growth. What was the the top market attribute that really drew you and, and the center space team to that market? Oh, it's a balance. I mean, if I were to choose one, it would be not just job growth, but the income level job growth. So higher income job growth was one thing that really drew us. I think they have they have a lot of innovation oriented jobs that have higher earning potential. In migration is huge. Another one that's really big for us is the cost of housing. So you know you could look at cities that have really great in migration population growth job growth. If it's still relatively inexpensive to buy a house, that can really impact our ability to grow revenue on the on the rental side. So that has made, I think, Denver really attractive to multifamily investors. The cost of housing there has always been higher than similar size cities. And there's some real, I mean, obviously real natural barriers to growth and supply on the western side of the city. You're facing the mountains. So So over the last three or four years, you've gone from zero to 2,000 units there in in the face of really competitive market conditions, right? It's one of the most competitive markets that, that we see out there from a capital markets perspective. How have you been able to achieve that level of growth and differentiate yourself as you look at product? We were a little a little bit earlier, I think, than the massive amount of capital flow. So when we look at Denver and the transaction volume, when we acquired the first project at the end of 2017, it was really the start of that kind of wave of capital coming into Denver. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on, and I think most companies do, some do better than others, is being a very disciplined buyer, establishing the relationships with both the brokerage communities, the owners, the operators making it very clear exactly what we were looking for, exactly what we were willing to pay for it, and then always following through on on what we said. So, you know, we have really good relationships in Denver with the brokerage community, with developers, and, you know, really just trying to keep that relationship up and show them, you know, the potential of what it's like to transact with us. And once, once you have one, you know, then the market knows and anyone who does real estate transaction knows there's always that conversation of, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into making your decision when you're selling. And one of them is execution risk on the performance side. And so, you know, it's really important to us to make sure that we are good at the execution side. And the way to do that in our mind is to set everyone's expectations right from the beginning about exactly what we're looking for. You know, we really haven't strayed kind of off of a pretty strict investment thesis, which which helps everyone, you know, get kind of to the transaction a little bit faster. I think a lot of companies would say, hey, we do that too. At the end of the day, I mean, oftentimes we just paid the most. So... (laughs) 
I'm not hiding the fact that we also paid, you know, absolutely market prices for the transactions that we've, we've acquired. So as you, as you alluded to, the last several years have been full of ups and downs, most notably because of, of the pandemic. Over that time period, of course, you're overseeing thousands of units across multiple different geographies, many different states. How did your team and how did you adapt when COVID first hit to address the, you know, the immediate need of keeping your tenants safe and, and adapting the business model in the first days of the pandemic? Yeah, I would say, you know, looking back, we adapted very quickly and often. You know, with hindsight, we would have done a lot of things differently, but we made the best decisions we could with the information that we had. That information frequently changed on a daily basis. So we had a response committee that was cross-departmental that came together at first every day. They're still meeting twice a week to address issues related to mask mandates, changing regulations, potential OSHA requirements. And we tried to just keep our team and our resident at the front of everything we did, making sure everybody felt safe. There was no time in those first days to think about what our investors thought or what our stock price was or where the rents were going to go. We really focused everyone on, you know, how are we going to address the issue facing the actual humans who are living and working at our properties? And I think that benefited us. We were able to, you know, maintain our staffing levels and really continue service to our residents, which with hindsight was really important because, you know, collections were strong across the market. Rents actually held pretty steady across our markets. And it really set us up for success in 2021 when we saw rental rates really start to increase. And that puts a lot of pressure on your team and your products because, you know, when you ask someone for a pretty big rent increase, they do look around and see what the alternatives are and you need to be the best one for them. So yeah, coming into that from a position of strength is certainly a differentiator there. Right. I'm, I'm not sure we knew that when we were doing it, but <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> Feels nerve wracking in the, in the fog of war. Right. Is there, you know, coming out of that experience and, and we're certainly not all the way out yet, but hopefully most of the way out of at least the intense period of COVID, are there lessons that you've learned that have changed the way you run your organization today? We really, during the last two years, have had to listen to our team members much more closely. What we heard wasn't just about COVID, but really enhanced a lot of our operating business. They might start saying, well, you know, I would work at home, but this and this and this need to get done at the site. And, and we would say, okay, well, what if we could fix those things that, you know, what if we can automate those with technology or give everybody a little bit more space to have more flexibility? So I think that lesson I hope really sticks with us is really acknowledging that what is happening on the ground is where the business happens. It doesn't happen on a spreadsheet. It doesn't happen at the lender's office or on the uh, trading floor where our stock trades. It really happens at the site level. And so, you know, just really listening and taking that feedback and being as responsive as you can. And that doesn't mean doing what they want. It does mean that you have to explain what change or why you're not going to make a change. I think we were forced to focus on the why really heavily and bring a lot of a lot stronger communication. I, I really hope that does continue. I think that should hopefully continues for all corporations because I, I think that answer gets pretty similar when you ask that question. In that answer, you mentioned the importance of technology and how that's changed. Of course, looking even outside of multifamily across real estate more broadly, one of the biggest shifts over the last decade has been the increasing role of technology, both on the back end in terms of 
revenue management and systems like that, but also perhaps more dramatically on the front end in terms of ways you relate to customer. At Center Space, one part of your role is overseeing the technology infrastructure. How have you seen that shifting? How are you using technology to, to deliver a better customer experience and kind of experience? The technology is changing faster than you can keep up with it. And if you are an asset manager or an IT manager in multifamily or any real estate, I think the amount of emails you're getting every day about this new product or this new startup, it, it really is amazing. And a lot of it is excellent work that's you know, long overdue. And we actually just are under taking an implementation of a new property management software, which touches every piece of the business. So it's it's been a long year in, the, in that respect. A lot implementation was our safe word, we say around here. The place where we're starting is, is really trying to look at the demographic and listening to that resident and meeting them where they want to be met with enabling technology. And more and more what they're hearing is they want self-service. Our job is to try to find technology solutions that integrate well with our other systems, number one, and number two can really advance that self-service mission and help our residents interact with the building in the way that they want to interact with it. So there's some very funny stories that come out of these conversations like, well, you know, we have to put the resident handbook in the kitchen drawer. Well, why why are we printing the resident handbook? Why can't we put that on a portal? You know, well, because we've always put it there. And I think real estate is an industry that is has been slow to adopt technology for good reason. It's a great margin business and the return on those investments is sometimes hard to tell. But if we can more actively retain residents and with self-service initiatives, reduce staffing, that's going to be a win for us in the industry. Not necessarily because it might push margin, but you know, one of the biggest issues I think facing our industry right now is just a lack of operational pipeline for talent. We hear a lot of clients worried about the shift in the industry towards self-service and how they balance that with the desire to stay close to their tenant base and then really understand them. How have you managed that tension to the extent that you see a tension between those? I do see that tension. And I think the way we're trying to think about our customer experience is to identify the points in that journey where personal interaction or a personal moment of importance that is going to require, you know, face-to-face contact or human-to-human contact, whether that be over Zoom or virtually, we're trying to identify where those are. What we do know is it's not likely how they pay their rent. (laughs) So, you know, do we need the office staff to accept rent checks? Probably not. In fact, I would advocate, no, absolutely not. So we're really looking at that, the whole journey and trying to find those spots where empathy might be required is something that you can't get from a, from an interaction with a screen and focus our time and energy and our staffing on those moments where we can really create a differentiated experience for the customer. So that's something that's high on our minds. Our customer experience journey, our leadership conference this year in a few weeks is going to be entirely focused on the customer experience experience and how we're identifying those and how we're making those memorable interactions that can make that lasting impression and help give the residents confidence about what the culture of the building is and and what service might look like for them. You mentioned the leadership team and and certainly in your role, you oversee a large team across um, the organization. When you're thinking about the team that you're trying to build, what are you looking for when you hire? Is there something that you think makes a center space team member different than perhaps elsewhere in the industry? 
hiring is on the top of everyone's mind right now because I think everyone is feeling some talent pressure. But for us, we really try to focus on what we call our six keys. And there are a few of those key values that we have that are really prevalent across our employee base. And that includes from the maintenance team all the way to our CEO. And those I think would be kind of a, we call it dare to win or a learning orientation, a willingness to, to try something new and then also embracing change. So, you know, when someone else wants to try something new or be a little bit different, you know, really being open to that. So those I think are the two keys that are the hallmarks of our of our culture is, I hate to use the word innovation, but, you know, innovative and willing to change and open to learning new things. I think our team would probably say the same thing, that if they had to name the key that they thought was the most important, they would say, well, to the management team, it's embracing change. We've certainly given them enough of it over the the past five years. (laughs) (laughs) Keeps everyone on their toes, right? One of the big shifts over the last two years, really, since since COVID, of course, has been the shift in the center of energy, right? You know, back in 2019, there was a lot of conversation about the energy, particularly in center cities, becoming real live, work, play destinations, both in the markets that center space is active in, and then also more broadly across the United States. And of course, with the, the last two years of both the pandemic impacts, the economic impacts, and then remote work on top of all of that, that storyline has changed a bit. How are you thinking about urban versus suburban and what your tenants are looking for and the broader multifamily customer base are looking for? Our portfolio construction is really focused on being balanced on that urban and suburban. And then with respect to suburban, we still focus on walkability. So we still focus on those submarkets where there are amenities that are occurring outside of our building. So there's restaurants walkable or there's a secondary job center in that suburb. And we're still interested in maintaining that balance because I think we're long-term believers that people are going to want to live in cities and maybe they won't want to live in a city their entire life, but that's good for renting. (laughs) And I think has historically been the case that, you know, urban centers have higher percentages of renters because they often, you know, migrate out. So I don't think that the core downtown are going to become obsolete in an adult's kind of home journey. They go from their parents' house to their dorm room or to a roommate within a rental spot, maybe renting a house to a townhouse to owning a home. I think that the urban centers are still going to maintain a high importance in that journey and we want to have a good balance between urban and, and suburban product. I'd say our acquisitions in 2021 are are really, a, you know, demonstrate that. In Minneapolis, we bought both urban core and suburban and same in Denver. We bought one suburban asset and one urban core asset. Have you found in that over that same time period, has your acquisitions criteria shifted materially? Obviously, prices have changed, but in terms of all of the other elements, have, have, have you changed the way you think about what assets look attractive? I don't think so. I think we we probably have a little bit higher scrutiny on what the amenities look like and how they might need to change. So that is an area when we look at new acquisitions that maybe the building is five or six years old. You know, are there spaces that we could change into small conference rooms for people who work from home to have, you know, additional space outside of their unit? But, you know, the core acquisition criteria of what, what kind of product we're looking for, what kind of rents we're looking for, the submarket and kind of the real estate fundamentals, we, we haven't changed there. So as a leader in the industry, on a daily basis, I'm sure you're interacting with, with emerging leaders and younger leaders, what advice would you have for them as they start their career in real estate? 
That's a great question. I would take more help. You know, I would try to accept more help from people. So people who are willing to help you, which there I find in the real estate industry is prevalent, take, take them up on it. Go to lunch with people who offer you their time, hear their stories. Even if you don't learn something from them that you want to emulate, you might learn something that you don't want to emulate. And that's true in your personal life too. So, I mean, I kind of joke, I, I wish that I would have put my kids in more carpools instead of insisting that I drive. <laughs> you know, just to find time to really engage in thought leadership with people in the market who are willing to share their time and expertise with you. We work in an industry that I think has that in spades. So, you know, I have a lot of friends in other industries. They, they never meet people from, you know, other companies. I talk to other CEOs, COOs, fund sponsors, you know, at least on a quarterly basis and share ideas and get together and exchange information or data about what we're looking at. And I think that's a really special thing about the real estate industry. And I, I hope my team takes advantage of those opportunities. And I would encourage anyone else to do that as well. It's been a really exciting evolution in the industry as a whole as more and more companies address ESG issues. How are you organizing your company around it? What sort of structure are you creating to help support all of these initiatives that you discussed? This has become more and more important, mostly to our key stakeholder base, which is our residents and our team members. It's very important to our board of directors, but we're hearing about it more and more frequently from our investor base. So I would have said when I started in the COO role four years ago that maybe once or twice a year, we got an investor question about ESG. I'd say now it's five to 7% of the questions that we get. And almost every time we talk to an investor, there's some question about it. So no doubt it's rising in importance. We have undertaken to lay the groundwork and the baseline for what we have to work with from an ESG standpoint. And so we started with a kind of developing a roadmap and doing a large stakeholder engagement across our residents and our team members and our investors to say what is really important. Not surprisingly, given where we are at, we did this about 18 months ago, started the process health and safety and wellness are really at top of mind for both our residents and our team members. So it's fairly, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's easier to look at and say, we're going to put in Energy Star appliances and we're going to use these kind of materials and we can measure those things and we can cost them. What is more difficult is that S, right? The, the social part of it. So we're really trying to balance, you know, water conservation efforts and the things that we can really measure with trying to make progress on what is a baseline for health, safety, wellness? What are the initiatives that we can undertake that can advance those? And how are we going to measure success in that? That S encompasses, you know, your benefits plans, your culture, your corporate giving, your community service, all of those things kind of wrapped into one. So I use this word earlier. It's a little squishy in that, in that area, but really important to us. And on the governance side, from an institutional standpoint, we have at Center Space an advantage on the governance side in that we're public. And so public investors really do demand good governance and best practices. And there are a lot of resources and standards out there. We have to publish, you know, everyone publishes charters and governance guidelines. And so there's a lot to go on there. I feel really confident about that. Our company has institutional shareholder services, ISS score of one, which is the best you can get on the governance side. And that provides a really great baseline and leverage for us to then say, 
okay, you know, how do we look at what we did on the governance side, finding best practices, looking at resources, just determining what is most important and, you know, how do we translate that into both the E and the S. We are on our third year of publishing an annual report where we're kind of telling our investors how we're doing in those areas. And I think we're really proud of what we've done, but there's a long way to go. So we're just at the beginning of kind of a five-year roadmap that will take us to where where we could really, I think, be closer to best in class. But I don't think that's unusual for real estate companies. And our mantra is better every day. So <laughs> you have to leave something for tomorrow to do. That's right. <laughs> There's always a to-do list. Now, I think it's we're, we're, we're certainly at the early stages of the industry's evolution, but it's exciting to see that the path forward becoming clearer, at least. Right. Especially on the, I mean, on the environmental side, it's both easy and hard. Cause you know, I mean, for us, we can, like I said, we can pick better materials. You can build better. You can renovate with different things. You can control water. You can do water conservation efforts, but you know, a lot of what happens in our buildings, we don't control because a resident actually lives in that, in the, in the home. And so, you know, we have to balance what we would like from an environmental standpoint, which within our company might be no parking spots to, to, you know, to really delivering the product that people want to pay for can be a little bit of a conundrum, right? Which what we believe might be best for the environment or socially, if people don't want to pay for that, it's, that's not a feasible investment. Have you developed an environmental team? We have an ESG committee. It's overseen by our board of directors. Our nominating and governance committee of our board actually has direct oversight of that ESG committee. It's led by our head of asset management, and it's a cross-functional team that undertook our materiality survey with an outside consultant and really is putting into place the five-year roadmap. We try to highlight our ESG efforts every year, you know, kind of across the company, in our monthly newsletter, they have a page and, you know, at our leadership conference, they'll have a breakout session. And, you know, so we're really trying hard to raise the visibility and therefore the desirability to be on that committee <laughs> because, you know, just what everyone wants is some extra committee work. But, you know, we have people from the communities to people at the support offices, you know, accounts to maintenance techs who, who contribute to that. And particularly with respect to the S you know, it's a, it's a lot about our team. And so we want to make sure we have as broad of a group of opinions as we can in that regard. So the last question, the last bit of time, I know you're, you, you like attending live shows. I imagine that, that has been reasonably tough during, during COVID times, or at least, you know, going back to the, the peak of COVID, but I hear you're on a, on a tear so far this year. So I want to hear what your best, the best live show, live music performance has been since diving back into it. Well, since diving back into it, um, for me, seeing live music, uh, one, it's a real luxury coming out of COVID to be able to start seeing live music again. And there are still some places where I've had tickets in hand and the day before the show gets canceled um, or plans. But, um, you know, for me, it's not just about the band that I like or the music. And if I gave you the list of shows, you would say there's like nothing that <laughs> brings those things together. But for me, it's about the venue and the people that I'm with and, and also just supporting that community of artists. So I I don't know if I have a favorite since, well, my, I guess my favorite since COVID ended, it was a great group of family and friends, including all of our children. And we saw Eric Church at the Ball Center in Denver. So it was also a great long weekend. Several of our group ran the Colfax Half Marathon. So it's really about the event for me. But one of my favorite all-time shows 
was at Red Rocks, also in Denver, we did a team retreat and it was my first as the COO. And I really wanted to take everyone to Red Rocks. And of course, our team, which at that time was about 20 kind of regional directors and above, they had no idea. I mean, they were like, we're going to see Dwight Yoakam. This is stupid. In fact, I heard one of them say that <laughs> several of them didn't want to go. And, uh, you know, I just kind of held firm very nervously and put them all on a bus and everyone was chatting. You know, you can always kind of have a good time on a bus. And as we drove up the mountains into Red Rocks, it got very, very quiet. And the minute we stepped out and everyone stepped into this beautiful natural amphitheater, everyone knew the reason why we were there, which was about doing something together and all being together in one spot with the same kind of overwhelming feeling of belonging. So, you know, you can be sitting next to someone who has completely different political views, a completely different socioeconomic status and background and be in a show and you're all there for the same reason, which is to experience that. And that I find really powerful. And so that was one of my favorite shows. We did not even stay to see Dwight Yoakam <laughs> uh, because the clock hit 10 and I put everyone back in the bus. But it was one of those really special moments where I realized, you know, why I love it so much is because it's bigger than just one person. So it really kind of perpetuates that feeling of that the sum of the parts are more than just one plus one. So that's probably my favorite. I've been to Red Rock several times. It's probably my favorite venue. But coming up next, next show on the list is uh, Metallica. <laughs> not necessarily a through line to these examples that you that you mentioned yeah no exactly like the old country artist new country artist metallica followed by billy joel so <laughs> well, I, I would like to join your leadership retreats next time it sounds like you, you plan a good event so i'm i'm in if no one else is well you're more than welcome eric we'd love to have you <laughs> Thank you, Anne, and, and we appreciate you um, joining us for the podcast today. Really appreciate your perspective, hearing about your background, and the exciting things that are keeping you busy at Center Space these days. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and ha having me on. Thank you for coming on. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.